0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Today we speak to the amazing Menno Schiltoisen, an evolutionary biologist whose latest book, Darwin Comes to Town, explores the rapid evolution of the animals that call our cities home. From blackbirds that sing at a higher pitch to be heard above the city noise, to pigeons with feathers that detoxify their bodies from lead and zinc. Menno also talks about how we can make places that better encourage biodiversity and so make healthier habitats for humans too. We meet Menno in advance of his lecture in London, hosted by the UK Green Building Council. First up, Julie Hiragoyan, Chief Executive of the UK GBC, tells us why she's invited Menno to town in order to influence Makers of
1: Place. So my name is Julie Hiragoyan, and I'm the Chief Executive here at the UK Green Building Council. And uh, we're a charity, we're an industry network. We have 400 members that span the whole of the construction development um, design value chain. And our mission is to radically improve the sustainability of the built environment. Um, And our vision um, is a built environment that enables people and planet to thrive. Um, and one of the five key impact areas within that is nature and biodiversity. So, um, for that reason, we were delighted to invite Meno um, over today to speak to our members at an event this evening about the importance of integrating nature and ecology into development, but also actually ongoing place um, making and place management. Um, and the reason why we're doing this now is because we uh, we believe there's a sort of timely point to really raising awareness of the built environment sector's responsibility to both protect and restore the natural environment. Um, So um, within the UK, there's there's been a bit of a push in in terms of looking at that recently. um, We've got quite an ambitious 25 year environment plan. Um, and within that, the government has published proposals for new developments to be net environmental gain or net biodiversity gain, and a number of uh, local authorities and city authorities are really pushing that um, with gusto. Um, so there's a, there's a there's a real immediacy to to some of that. Now we absolutely believe, um, and evidence suggests that. There is a financial, um, a social and an environmental case for doing that. Um, All three are, are really compelling and quite urgent. Um, the financial one if um, you know land values can be increased by incorporating natural spaces um, they might um, you know rent or sell faster um, and they detract inward investment more easily or they get you know planning permission faster so there's a kind of there's a push from a, a pure commercial point of view but on the social side um, it's really linked to health and well-being and the sort of quality of life aspects of people so as we're building more and more dense towns and cities, you know, we're, we're needing to think much more carefully about the, the quality of life of the people within those. So it's a very strong correlation with um, both physical but also mental health, um, access to nature and parks and, and that sort of thing. Um, and obviously on the environmental side, um, there is a, a, a really massive decline in terms of our species here in the UK um, and uh, globally. So um, we really need to do something about this fairly urgently.
2: My name is Menno Schildhuyzen.
1: So, um, Darwin
0: comes to town. Uh, You talk a lot about how creatures have adapted to cities um, and how they are evolving rapidly. Was that a big surprise to you, to look at that research and collate it together?
2: Um, Well, to me it wasn't, although I wouldn't say surprise, but it's still something that I find very exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I've always been studying evolution, and for e- many evolutionary bi- biologists, are forced to just uh, infer evolution based on patterns that you find in nature or fossils that you can 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 find. You cannot often watch evolution taking place and see it in action. And uh, We've since, I guess since the 1960s, we've realized that there are actually situations where species can evolve so quickly that we can see it happening in in a human lifetime. And those are usually situations where the environment changes drastically. Uh, And that's of course the situation in in cities where where all these human-induced environmental changes come together and you have an entire ecosystem that is in the process of evolving rapidly and changing rapidly. Um, So I knew that this would be expected and I was also... uh, So I wasn't surprised that that researchers are finding this rapid evolution, but I still find it very exciting when I can actually, as an evolutionary biologist, observe a species change and evolve, especially if it's, you know, in our own streets and backyards.
0: So um, one of the things that struck me because they are such a common city pest and often thought of as a pest, um, mm-hmm. is the story of the pigeons. So, yeah. c- so can you tell us a bit about what pigeons, um, where have they come from, and yeah. how they've evolved in cities?
2: Yeah, yeah, pigeons are so so common that we we almost don't notice them anymore. At least we don't consider them wildlife. We just consider them, you know, street furniture almost. But. Um, yeah, pigeons are originally uh, of course a wild bird and they still live in the wild, so their ancestors still live in rocky environments in the south of Europe, like if you go to Greece or to Italy in rocky uh, mountainous areas you see them living in the natural niche which is steep rocky cliffs, so it's actually not surprising that they do so well in the city because a city is basically in a collection of artificial rocky cliffs, uh, so they have, they have something that resembles very much their natural environment. And that's why they do so well in cities. Of course, also they've been domesticated. So they are, they've, they've evolved to be close to humans and that also helps. Uh, and they're one of the most uh, widespread urban birds. You find them in almost any city all over the world from the tropics to the poles. Um, and, well, one of the things that I like about them is that they're ideal subjects for studying urban evolution. So there's one set of studies that I, that I really like, which is being carried out in Paris by a researcher who's looking at the color of the plumage of the, of the city pigeons, which can range from pale gray to, to, to really dark, sooty gray. And she's found that the, the darkest Forms of pigeons um, are better at detoxifying uh, them, themselves, actually, because the heavy metals like zinc and and lead binds to the melanin, the pigment in those dark feathers. So the the pigeons that are genetically predisposed to make darker feathers are also the ones that are better at ri- getting rid of those heavy metals from their system because they just simply put it in their, in their feathers. So you see that in big cities where there's a lot of pollution of these, of these metals, like zinc is just constantly flaking off street lanterns and, and electricity pylons. Um, the bigger cities have a high proportion of those darker pigeons. So in, in, in cities, those pigeons, uh, which are already, of course, adapted to, to being a city bird, are even getting even better at it by, by basically making themselves darker.
0: What are other characteristics that help animals adapt to urban life?
2: Uh, it can be all kinds of things. Um, for, for example, there are uh, physical features of the city like, um, like the, the, the heat island, so temperature tolerance, being tolerant of higher temperatures. Is something we we find in some urban animals, um, being um, being able to deal with with um, these artificial human surfaces. There are many organisms uh, like lizards, for example, that in nature would scramble up trees and branches, and in cities, when they are colonized, cities have to do the same thing, but then on uh, on, on on buildings and on rain pipes and and, and windows and. Glass and iron surfaces. So, being able to cling on those smooth, human-produced surfaces is something that you see um, changing the, the the limbs of certain animals, which which allows them to better cling on to those those smooth surfaces, which are very different from what they're normally what they would normally encounter in the natural environment. Um, but I think actually the most important group of factors of the city is that uh, are other species, not, not really the, the, the structure of, of, the, of the human constructions, but more the fact that cities are places where species of animals and plants live together which have not evolved together. Because human trade brings in species from all over the world, so an, an urban uh, ecosystem is built up from species that come from all over the world, it's a melting pot. Uh, and species have to, to evolve ways to, to build a food web together. So all those niches and all those connections between species that live that, that were uh, the case in the areas where the species came from are, are irrelevant in, a, in, the, in the place where they live together. Um, and of course, a, one important species in that whole system is us. So, so direct interactions with people is also something that you find a lot of um, animals uh, uh, evolving um, because of I mean they're they're, they're evolving because of the the interactions with 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 people and then you have to think about things like tolerance or um, so simply the, the the distance that it that you can approach to a bird a, a, a wild bird before it flies away is something that's measurable and that has a genetic component and that you can see is, is usually much shorter, the distance is much shorter in cities than in the, in the natural environment for the same bird species. And the longer a species has been living in close association with people, the shorter the distance is. So this tolerance for, for humans is something that is, that is evolving in many urban, uh, urban animals.
0: I know in some cities the squirrels get very close, and, and then I start mm-hmm. to feel afraid because oh, they're yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're almost too comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So if um, on the other hand we have species that uh, have disappeared from our cities, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so you know what are the the characteristics or the the negative characteristics like this that can that can lead to to the demise of a population?
2: Yeah, it's. Um, it's 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 a bit hard to say which it's a bit hard to predict which species will be able to thrive in a city and which will not. It's, I mean, some some species which you wouldn't expect um, to be common in cities sim, somehow manage to to adapt and to to uh, to live with us. Um, but in general, I think you would find that urban species are species that in natural areas live in sort of dynamic habitats that often change, like like floodplains or, um, yeah, all kinds of slopes of, of mountains, for example, where there's often a lot of disturbance and changes, um, forest fringes also, a lot of crows, for example, come from, from those sort of dynamic uh, edges of forests. And they are, so they're pre-adapted um, to live in, a, in a, an environment that's constantly changing. So that helps. Um, and um, in in larger animals like birds and mammals, um, it it helps if they're living in that sort of environment. Also makes them better at dealing with new situations. And of course, in cities, there's constantly there are constantly changes. There's new ways for we, in which we package food, for example. So problem solving. And being interested and curious about new things, those are those are personality traits that you see in in urban animals. Um, and I think that animals that have that ability naturally have a better chance of colonizing colonizing the city. But it's certainly true that there are many species which probably will never be able to be as an urban an urban species. It's still rather an, sort of an elite group of species that make up this urban uh, ecosystem.
0: How similar are city populations across the world of nature? Mm. Are there great um, differences um, or are there some things that are, you know, some species that actually kind of thrive in in every city?
2: Yeah, there are some species that you find in almost every city. Uh, If you look at birds, for example, if you simply count or if you list the species of birds in different cities, um, and if you do the same thing with natural environments close to those cities, you see that the, the if, you, if you take cities that are further and further apart, they still share a fair, fair number of species. Whereas at some points the, the natural uh, bird fauna uh, has no similarities anymore after a few thousand kilometers distance. So that shows that um, there is a certain group of species that are Hopping from city to city and are homogenizing the, the the flora and I mean the fauna and the flora in um, because the same is true for plants uh, in cities. So there is a sort of a, a general set of species that do in general do well in cities and that um, are colonizing cities much more easily than other species. So um, and that's actually very I mean bi- biologically that's very interesting because. There has never been a situation in the history of Earth, on Earth, where you could have a global new habitat that is distributed all over the world, which share the same, the same species. Because usually there are barriers, there are mountain chains and oceans that prevent species from, from crossing. So that's why you find a completely different set of species in a forest in Madagascar compared to a very similar looking forest in, uh, in Borneo, for example. Um, but cities are, are a new environment, which which seems to be homogenized all over the world. And of course, we transport species as well. And in addition, species that are well adapted to city life in one city can easily then colonize another city. So those two factors are causing this homogenization, um, which is which is which is interesting. But it also means that a lot of biodiversity gets uh, gets lost because because you don't find the high turnover in species, you find more or less the same set of species all over the world. So it's not, urban biodiversity is maybe not the best um, example or, or, or the best way to conserve the entire biodiversity. You're still going to need conservation of completely natural environments as well, which is where all those other species live.
0: So that was a kind of a question I had coming out of the book, because we have this sense that the cities you know, that the animals are adapting to the cities is the counter argument. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll work it out. We mm-hmm. don't need to worry about yeah. any yeah. kind of conservation because yeah. yeah. they'll just evolve to live with us. Is yes. that, is that true?
2: So that's only true to a to very limited extent. Um, I think there, there, there will be As as time goes by, uh, more and more species will be able to colonize cities, and if we provide, and of course that's what we're talking about today, if we provide conditions for a greater number and a richer ecosystem to to settle in cities and to develop in cities, um, you can um, work towards maintaining a a rich and healthy ecosystem in cities, um, but it's never going to replace or to compensate for the loss of species on a global scale, it's still a relatively limited set of set of species that will be living in uh, in cities, and many species will not be able to colonize cities. And you still need to have reserves of of pristine environments to to preserve those. You might, uh, I mean, there's some areas in the world where you can have these sort of natural habitats very close mm-hmm. to cities or even inside cities. There are some cities in Asia which have remnants of tropical rainforest still sort of embedded in the city and they preserve a number of species that are real rainforest species that wouldn't be able to survive a kilometer away in namely in the city itself um, but by and large those natural environments will be relatively far away from cities so that's a, you would need both you need you need to bo- do, to do both things you'd need to maximize ecosystems in anthropogenic environments which are very much dominated by people and at the same time preserve pristine environments as much as we can and preserve the the species in there.
0: If somebody was to, to, as many of our listeners do, design big pieces of city Mm -hmm. from scratch, often in the middle of the city, um, and they're looking to um, attract or foster some kind of food web or natural habitats, Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that they should be thinking while they're designing?
2: I think one of the most important things is not only think on the large spatial scale. We we tend to think, when we're talking about urban nature, even though it's already of course smaller scale than than non-urban nature, um, we still tend to think of large animals, things of our size more or less, like big mammals and birds um, and trees and, and shrubs. Um, but those are just a relatively small part uh, and very very visible part of of the urban ecosystem. And I think the m- the majority of species that will make a healthy and rich urban ecosystem are much smaller. Are usually not noticed by people. They're they're insects and snails and woodlice and spiders um, and, and mosses and lichens and small small uh, plant-like organisms that you wouldn't notice but they make up the bulk of the species and they i think they also make up the the most important part of the of the food web and for that you also need to to manage uh vegetations and and um places where they could settle on a very small spatial scale so don't only think of parks and, and green spaces but also of uh creating places where these small species can live and for which you just need um, you know very small pockets of vegetation so you could and I know there's all kinds of initiatives I know a little bit about it but but I think people who are in the in the green building world they have much better knowledge of the latest uh, technological developments but I think creating new building materials that allow these species to settle is really something that's going to be extremely helpful.
0: I don't think, when I'm thinking about a new development, I don't think about making places for spiders and snails mm. and insects because I don't necessarily want them in my house.
2: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Is that the wrong well, way to think may not, about
2: Well, you may not want them in your house, but you might want them on your house. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, you know, the, the walls and roofs of, of buildings uh, can be ideal habitats for, for very rich communities of, uh, of small animals and plants. Um,
0: and I want them on my house because I want, because are they an indicator of, of my own health and well-being or the health and well-being of my surroundings?
2: Well, in general, it's um, it, it's known that people feel happier if they have sort of day-to-day contact with, with wild animals and plants um, and you can also train Basically, train people to also notice the small ones. People can become happy if they see a bumblebee, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a fox or a or, 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 a, or a kite. It can be small animals as well. Plus, uh, you know, those, even if you're only interested in the large ones, they usually need uh, a food web composed of the small ones to survive. I mean, the, many of the birds eat insects, so so you need you need. Um, food web made up of uh, many species of insect to maintain those birds in the city so even if you don't notice them you still they're still there and they still need to be there to maintain those more noticeable parts of urban nature um
0: there's a very um strong understanding in london about nature corridors the idea Mm -hmm. that the victorian rail sidings and the canals are really important um in in the major cities for the movement of nature across the city. Yeah. But, uh, but I've heard you speak about how there's a problem with corridors too in, in how they di- mm-hmm. they kind of um, influence the movement of nature. Can you talk about those?
2: Approaches? Yeah, again I think that's also an example of of how policies are often shaped by what we know about large animals and not so much about what we know of, of small animals or even medium-sized animals. Uh, the, the reason that I mention in my book that connecting every green space in a city is not necessarily a good thing for all species is that there are some studies um, and the, the best one, best known one, the best, most detailed one is on white-footed mice in city parks in Manhattan, um, where every city park harbors an isolated population of these wild uh, native mice. Um, and genetic studies have shown that every of these populations is, is adapted to the specific conditions of the park where it lives. Um, so the Central Park mice are perfectly adapted to the conditions in Central Park and the, and the Prospect Park mice as well, which are different conditions because the design of the park is different. Uh, Prospect Park is visited much less by people, so there's much less junk food. And so the diet of the mice is has diverged also. And if you would connect those two parks, if you would create a corridor so that the, the mice from Prospect Park can go to Central Park and vice versa, then some of those optimal uh, adaptations would be polluted, genetically polluted by the non-adapted mice coming in from Prospect Park. So um, for for smaller organisms, which can have a healthy population even in small fragments of, of, of green, um, you may prevent this this local adaptation um, or at least you can undo local adaptation that has been taking place in the past uh, for larger species it's definitely good because many large species they they have so few individuals in a fragment of 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 forest in a city that you can get problems with inbreeding and and what they call genetic um, loss of genetic variability which makes them vulnerable to diseases. Um, but if you have small organisms which can have thousands of populations in, with thousands of individuals, even in a small fragment, then, um, those problems don't play a role in such a, in such a large population, even if they live in a small place.
0: Can you talk about the, the evolution of the blackbird?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the blackbird is... Um, so, so many of the examples that we have now of urban evolution um, are sort of very small scale very subtle evolution there is just a species changing in one aspect of its appearance or its, its life history. Um, we're not really talking about the evolution of new completely new species you don't see um, an, an urban species that has evolved thanks to people and is only living in cities we, we don't have that yet and except for uh, a few special cases one of those special cases is the urban blackbird which was one of the first um, birds to start to colonize cities more than 200 years ago. Um, and because it has been adapting, so you have the forest blackbirds and then they started colonizing cities and first overwintering in cities and then, and then living the year round in cities. And they, that habit spread throughout Europe and North Africa and into, into China also now. Um, and over that period, we see that in all those urban blackbird populations, not just one thing has changed, but a whole list of characteristics. So, urban blackbirds have shorter beaks, they have uh, shorter digestive systems, they sing at a higher pitch, they sing earlier in the day, they don't migrate anymore, they breed earlier in the year, they have a more relaxed personality, and that's really also something that is genetic because there are some. Genes that have to do with serotonin uh, receptor, so, so hormone receptor which has a different mutation in the urban blackbirds, um, and many of these differences are are genetic um, and because of the, their, their breeding time is also different from the forest blackbirds, so the, the urban blackbirds start breeding in, in, in our part of Europe already at the end of March, and by that time the forest blackbirds aren 't even back yet from their from their wintering quarters so by the time they arrive, the urban blackbirds have already started breeding, so there's also not much interbreeding between the urban and the forest blackbird. So the urban blackbird might actually be on the way of becoming a separate species. It's, it's not there yet. It's very early stages, but um, in a few hundred years, it could be that we could start talking about the urban blackbird as a separate species. And the same thing may be happening with some other species as well.
0: Pigeons. Maybe.
2: Pigeons, um, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know how often uh, really wild pigeons come across urban pigeons. Um, I mean, here in in, in in Western Europe there are no or very few rural, uh, native, na- natural populations of pigeons left. But, uh, yeah, there are a few other examples of, of species that might be on the way of becoming separate species.
0: I, um in in your book, you talk about if, if we can sustain our urbanized existence, you know, maybe more of this will happen. But the if was described as a big if. Do
2: mm-hmm.
1: you
0: think there is a big if around our urban existence?
2: Well, I don't know. It's uh, it's. I mean, we've it's such a new development, and it's it's developing so rapidly that um, I don't know whether it's uh, whether it will reach a plateau. Or, or if it's going to be a boom and bust cycle. If you're looking at um, normally how, uh, how animals and plants that, that dominate in a certain habitat, how, they, how their dynamics is and you usually see that they don't reach a sustainably dense level and manage to maintain it for a long time. Usually at some point the resources run out and then the population collapses. So um, the same thing could also happen to us in the long run. In the long run, of course, it would then be probably thousands of years at least. Um, but then again, not many species, well actually no species can, can plan this and forecast this the way we can. So we may still have an opportunity to, to sustain ourselves even though the, the, the laws of population dynamics should say that we should go through a boom and bust cycle.
0: Is there um, an element of uh, climate change influencing evolution yet, or is it too soon to see that having an impact on the populations?
2: Uh, No, there certainly is. Um, We have, uh, yeah, there are quite a few studies that show that um, that the temperature tolerances of species are evolving due to temperatures changing. but in urban environments, the uh, not global climate change, but local climate change is the most important thing. The urban heat island is is much a much more drastic change in temperature than the global uh, increase in temperature because big cities can have uh, urban heat islands that are uh, up to up to eight or ten degrees centigrade warmer than surrounding countryside because of the the buildings that absorb solar radiation and radiate it out and the blocking the wind. Um, and simply the concentration of people and their machines that creates uh, heat. So this, this bubble, of, bubble of hot air in cities, um, I think in terms of temperature adaptation, is the most important um, aspect that species will need to adapt to. And we see that happening in, in urban animals and plants as well.
0: Is there something we can learn as citizens from what you're observing in nature?
2: Um, you mean in terms of
0: ourselves, of I ourselves.
2: Suppose. Um, well we have to realize that to us of course an urban environment the way we live is just as extreme and new as it is for the animals and plants that live in cities. We, we have also not evolved to to live in such dense concentrations of people and we've done it um, we've been doing that only for a few thousand years which is which is nothing in evolutionary term so so our bodies and our minds are certainly not adapted optimally to to living in these conditions um, which means that we probably many of the problems we're we're facing now in 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 city life in our psychology and our, our sociology and our way of dealing with other people and with ourselves have to do with the fact that we now live in an in an environment that we're not we're not meant to live in um, maybe this will change I often get the question will we also evolve over time into urban species and I think we probably will although um, we are we are not uh, we we don't have such a high potential for evolution as many of the wild species for the first firstly because our generation time is quite long so an, an, an urban insect will have two or three generations per year and this generation time is sort of the evolutionary clock speed so every generation you see the, the 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 effects of the natural selection that took place in the generation before so that for us that takes much longer we need 25 years for a new generation so our evolutionary speed is, is less great plus the fact that um, fortunately we were able to keep most people alive whereas Wild animals and plants have much more death, and death creates selection, and selection creates evolution. So we may not be able to evolve to to adapt ourselves to the cities we have created as fast as wild animals and plants can.
0: I um I guess one of the related to that question. I mean, I think yeah, there is that that question around um, human evolution. I also wanted to ask how. Air pollution or other polluting factors are um, impacting. So we talked about the pigeons but were there other um, animal adaptations in response to um, you know car use or Mm. uh, building design?
2: Well there's a lot. Um, There are examples of uh, animals adapting to the presence of PCB uh, pollution. of course, the famous example of, uh, of the peppered moth in the industrial uh, era, England was the first example that we know of, of urban evolution of a, a, a moth change evolving the color of its wings due to the, the soot on the, on the trees, uh, which is a textbook example for in, in biology textbooks. But that's that's, I think, the first. Uh, information that we had of a wild species evolving because of us and because of pollution in this case. Um, In terms of uh, the the physical structure of the city, buildings, I think fragmentation is a very important thing, so the the, the fragmentation of of vegetations and also of, of course some species live inside of buildings, so that's also fragmentation, so you get these local Local adaptations to the conditions of the local building that a species lives in. Uh, cellar spiders, you know, those long-legged spiders that you find in many houses. They 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 can move from room to room, but they cannot move from building to building because they're actually sort of subtropical cave spiders. They 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 don't survive well outside of the buildings. They really live with us in our in our artificial caves, uh, namely buildings and houses. Um, so they will. Um, they will adapt to the conditions in, in, a, in the building that they live in. Um, so whether we, we enhance that fragmentation, we'll, which will enhance the local adaptation of species or if we connect things more, um, will influence whether or not they will be able to adapt to the city. These are all things you can, you can sort of reason out and you can forecast and can predict. Um, if you, but it's yeah, it's going to be hard to um, to really take all these evolutionary changes into account if you want to to um, steer towards creating a very rich ecosystem in the city. In the end, I think that is what we want to do. But it's uh, it's, it's hard to to really forecast which species will be able to to adapt and which not. Uh, and how fast and also how the evolution of one species is going to impact that of another. Um, but I think as we get more information we can at least make some some reasoned choices based on what we know about how how species and how fast species can uh, can adapt to the changes that we make in the environment.
0: So here in, in London, Hackney has, um, has asked people to put swift bricks mm-hmm. into new developments over yeah. seven meters. And that was because of the renovation of old housing. Yeah. The swifts were returning to the same nest, and actually these nests were being done up into flats or, or yeah. converted into yeah. usable housing. Um, are there examples of other kind of planning or policy rules that are coming in to try and help preserve um, habitats in the city?
2: Yeah, as I said, I think that's a good that's a good example of how you can you can integrate building units, materials that that allow species to take up residence in in a building or close close to a, a building. Um, I, there's also these these bricks which have little holes in them that that allow wild bees to uh, to make their nests in. Um, in Holland, there's a company that creates uh, pavements tiles which, which all have little corners saved out, which allow a few plants of weeds to to sprout up without, without interfering with the with the surface of, uh, with the purpose of those tiles, namely creating a pavement so um, and I think a lot of a lot of creativity there is going to do a lot of good if we can um, get uh, communication going on between between ecologists and people who know the requirements of of animals and plants that live in the city, and on the one hand and on the other hand, um, people who design building materials, because I think it's it's nowadays with with, with good technology it's possible to to design and create materials uh, that we can integrate with buildings which um, Sort of mimic the I mean you, when you look at old buildings, they often have a lot of wildlife on them. You see that there 's moss growing on the roof and there 's plants sprouting from the from the gutters and there 's bees nesting in the in, in the mortar um, but that's usually i mean usually that interferes with the function of the building because then the you know the, the roof in the end collapses or gets too heavy from all the moss or um, the, the, the mortar gets soft and 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 water gets in. Um, but I think nowadays we are able to design building materials that, that have that, that old function of, of allowing plants and animals to settle without interfering with the functioning of the building itself. And I think that's if, if we can work towards those sort of solutions, then I, can, I think you can, you can get a very rich um, ecosystem which includes those small organisms that I was talking about. Um, and at the same time uh, allowing people to to live uh, sustainably and durably in those buildings and enjoy the presence of those of those urban ecosystems
0: Do you have any um, things that you hate to see when you're looking at developments or designs in the city
2: i what i don't like although it's i wouldn 't say hating but but uh, often uh, there's there's uh, Fortunately, a a clear movement to increase um, vegetated surfaces uh, on and around buildings, uh, things like green, green walls and green roofs. Um, And this is many, many award-winning designs have these elements in them, but usually this means that uh, those those walls are simply planted with a, a, a number of a list of species of of shrubs and and trees that were selected from the catalogue of a, of a garden center based on species that would do well in a relatively dry environment um, and I think it's it's much better to not to do any planting of species because some sometimes you know these these plants they after a few years they die because the wrong species have been selected if instead you would simply create the spaces for trees and shrubs to take root naturally um, then then you would automatically select for species that are already present in the city and that would colonize those spaces if they don't grow they clearly weren't the right species if they do grow then they are the right species so let these vegetations appear naturally rather than, than, than gardening them, rather than pre-designing them. I think managing the species that live in the city is in general a bad idea. I think it's better to let these, these communities develop naturally.
0: What about astroturf, the fake grass movement?
2: Yeah, well, I, that's, that's, that's fake grass, so that's all falls outside of biology as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>
0: There's a lot of pressure um, about the densification of the city and how there's a need for housing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and uh, there's often vibrant discussion about the green belt, whether it should be built on or, or continue to be preserved as a, as a green ring around mm-hmm. the city. Um, what's your view on, on green belts? Do they work? As a, are they important?
2: How could could you tell me exactly how would you define a green belt?
0: I guess it's a um, area of land that you can't build on that mm-hmm. surrounds the city. Yeah. So it's it's yeah, like a sort of a
2: buffer buffer, buffer zone, zone of. Um, mm-hmm. um, well, I think those are the only places where you would have large scale semi natural habitats in close close vicinity of the city. So I think for for maybe not necessarily for the for the biodiversity of the city as a whole but for the experience of of nature of the city dwellers it's it's very important to have those large scale areas as well i think for the for the for the inner city urban ecosystem to work you you can you can do with you can reach that with much smaller um, fragments of vegetation but for people to experience what it's like to be to be out in nature where you Where you have only a minimum of human uh, constructions. um, It's important to have those large-scale belts as well. So I think they serve more um, uh, a purpose for for mental well-being of of people uh, and maybe less so for the or maybe less than you would expect for the for the for the biodiversity values of the city. I think those if you can can integrate you can probably do a lot in uh, in the inner city to to maintain that urban ecosystem. Um, but I think for people to experience um, nature, which otherwise would be much further away, those green belts are very important.
0: So in some ways the pocket park or the micro development might be more significant than...
2: To me that is, but maybe that's also because I have a predilection for for smaller organisms, so I, 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 I see much more happening in these small Pockets that that are too small for squirrels and, and if you want squirrels then yeah they're not going to be satisfactory but if you like uh, and if you value uh, you know butterflies and bees and uh, and, and small uh, herbs then then those very small parks are just as valuable
0: so um, the foxes mm-hmm. are a big feature where we are yeah uh, and you were saying that actually the kind of large mammals are perhaps um, have their own kind of set of needs, and they're a bit more visible and loved. Mm-hmm. But they seem to be an equal part liked and hated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in what way, as humans, are, are, do we have an impact in kind of preferencing animals that we think are pretty and ones that we think are pests?
2: Yeah, we do that all the time. We place all kinds of values on species which are which don't have any ecological basis, uh, and they have their, they have to do with size, with with being furry or feathery um, with where they come from. We value you know, native species higher than exotic species, even though they may serve the same ecological role. Um, so I think it's important to, to try to minimize those, those feelings as much as possible to, to, to be, to value every species for its role in the ecosystem that it can play. And, and try not to uh, to let things like like size or the, the, the taxonomic group to which they belong or the or the region from which they come play a role in, in how we how we value them
0: probably just one last thing mm-hmm. which is um, what do you hope uh, people will find you know in educating them about our impact on wildlife in the city
2: well I, I hope that a few things i hope that people will realize first of all that that evolution is not you know a very abstract process for which you have to go to the galapagos of or study fossils to observe it's happening all the time everywhere around you in your own backyard in the street where you live it's something that you can also study there are all kinds of citizen science projects that you can participate in to to watch urban uh, urban species and, and, and study how they, how they adapt and how they evolve. Um, and once you, um, you realize that, and I, and I hope my book is contributing to that, you, you start noticing these things and just walking down the street is going to be so much more fun when you see those pigeons and realize that they have dark feathers because they have adapted to, to heavy metals and when you see those mosquitoes and realize that it's a, almost a new species that has recently evolved in the city. So realizing that you're walking in a, in a real-time, very exciting biological experiment, I think, is, is something that a lot of people could take benefit from.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TCMurray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.